Welcome to the BristolCon Fringe, a series of readings from the science fiction and fantasy community. This podcast was recorded in front of a live audience in the centre of Bristol. So, welcome everybody to another BristolCon Fringe. We'll get on with the the action in a little while, but first of all, I want to, to welcome a, a guest that we've got all the way from America. It's my friend Nancy here. Hello, Nancy. Now, Nancy, Nancy is not a, a science fiction writer, but she is a friend of a science fiction writer. She lives on an, an island off the coast of Maine called Peaks Island, which, as some of you may know, is also home to Catherine Valenti. And Nancy owns a little tourist attraction on the island. And during the winter, when the tourists are all gone, Kat goes and, and uses that premises to do her writing. So we've, we've definitely got a, a connection to a fabulous writer there. Now, you, you may be asking what Nancy is doing in Bristol. Well, she's brought her tourist attraction here because she owns the world's only umbrella cover museum. Right? <laughs> she has hundreds of them, uh, not all of which have made their way to Bristol, but lots of them have. And she's in centre space, just off Corn Street, for two weeks. So if you want to, to go and see a whole collection of really bizarre umbrella covers, and, and, and some quite ordinary ones as well, and the umbrella cover henge and other odd things, then that's the place to go. However, now it's time to get on with the entertainment for the evening. And to start off, we've got Chloe Hedden, whom we had here for the open mic uh, in April. And we were so impressed that we decided we had to have her back to, to read for a little bit longer. So welcome, please, Chloe. Hi, everyone. Can you hear me okay? Yeah, first off, I just want to say a huge thank you to BristolCon Fringe for inviting me back just on the basis of that five-minute reading I gave. This is only ever my second public reading and uh, a 20-minute one at that, so I I'm feeling kind of nervous right now. also like to thank, you thank my friends for coming along. Um, cheers, guys. You're making me really nervous sat there staring at me, so, so that's great. <laughs> little bit about me to start with. I'm from North Somerset. I currently work in Heritage and I'm a massive medievalist. I've got a master's degree in medieval studies. I do a little sport of reenacting here and there. And one of my main passions in life, apart from writing, of course, is historical European martial arts, otherwise known as HEMA. So I dress up in a cross between armor and police riot gear and hit people with swords and get hit in return. I'm actually pretty sore and pretty tired right now because I had a tournament on Saturday and my body's still punishing me for it. <laughs> um, yeah, so those of you who came to the open mic night or indeed listened to the podcast might remember I read the first five minutes of my unpublished novel, uh, which is a young adult fantasy called Forest Child. Um, the reading I'm going to do today leads directly on from that section, um, so you can all find out what happens next. A um, little bit of context regarding the plot. So 18-year-old Nara Felstone lives with her grandfather Tagore on the edge of the forest. Forest spelt with a capital F in true fantasy style. This is a vast ancient wilderness that covers most of the country of Kadan and has pushed the population out to the very furthest edges where they all leak out a living. Uh, the forest is an object of great fear and suspicion. Strange things are said to go on within the trees. 
and they seem to actively resist any attempts to clear the land, cultivate the land, or indeed settle the land. Um, Nara herself can't afford to be afraid of the forest. Uh, since she was about 10 years old, her grandfather Tagore has been gradually failing. Both his body and mind are not in a very good state, and it's fallen to her to provide for them. Uh, to this end, she's taught herself to hunt with a bow and arrow, and she goes out into the forest on secret hunting trips unknown to anyone, including and most especially her grandfather. She's out hunting one day when she hears her grandfather scream her name. Now, this is strange because um, she's over a mile into the trees, so quite a long way from her cottage, well out of earshot. And stranger still is that she hears his voice, not with her ears, but inside her head, again, in true fantasy style. Um, but she doesn't have time to worry about that, or the how or the why. All she knows is that she needs to get home as soon as possible because Tagore needs her. And this is what happens next. She was still wearing her quiver slung across her back. Nara tore it off and threw it aside as she entered the main room. The bow was gone, dropped far back in the forest. She would search for it tomorrow, not tonight. Nights were too dangerous. Her grandfather sat in, sat in his chair by the empty hearth just as she'd left him. In the shadows, his head slumped sideways as though in sleep. Nara rushed across and crouched before him, grabbing his hands. Grandfather, she gasped, grandfather. Tagore wasn't asleep. His eyes were closed, but his long, craggy features were creased with discomfort, a muscle twitching in one sunken cheek. His lips had cracked and were bleeding sluggishly. Hearing her, he stirred, eyes opening a slit, and in a voice that emerged from his throat as a raw scrape, whispered, My Nara, such sharp ears. The tightness in her chest eased slightly. He recognised her. That was good. And a tongue to match, isn't that what you always tell me? She replied with a strained smile. What is it, grandfather? What's wrong? Her grip tightened. She felt his pulse fluttering, fast and faint below her fingertips. What can I do? Tagore winced. His throat worked in a painful swallow. I've been foolish, he croaked. Careless. Careless? What do you... Thirsty. Nara leapt up. Racing into the small annex that served them as a kitchen, she rattled among the jugs and pots cluttering the table. She was lucky with the last jug. It had been refilled from the well only that morning and was still half full. She splashed some water into the cleanest cup she could find and hurried back. Tagore's head had lolled again, his face ominously slack. Grandfather? Nara put her free hand to his cheek. When he didn't respond, she grabbed his chin, pincer-like, and pulled it sharply around. Tagore? Tagore, Tagore, come on now, there's water, see? You need to drink, don't sleep now. His eyelids flickered. Encouraged, Nara offered the cup up to his lips. See, I brought you water. You'll feel better afterwards, I promise. Tagore, yes, that's right, wake up now. Have a little, just for... Her grandfather opened his eyes. Nara froze, the cup teetering against his mouth. Where there should have been brown, a warm hazel colour to match her own eyes... There was only black, black gaping holes that all but swallowed his irises, leaving only the faintest ring between that and the white. It was like staring into a pair of tunnels, only without a light at the end to mark your way. Just darkness, deeper and deeper, until the path was lost. 
Looking, Nara felt like the ground was moving, threatening to tip her forwards into those bottomless holes. She knew exactly what could make a person's eyes do that. Talia had taught her well. She just couldn't believe it. G Grandfather? Tagore gazed back, unblinking. Thirsty. Trembling, Nara touched a finger to the dark substance on his lips. Blood, she had thought. But when she brought her finger away again, the tip was stained not red, but purplish black. And when she held it under her nose, she didn't smell blood's iron tang, but an unmistakable sweetness. With a cry of horror, Nara threw the cup down and took Tagore's face in her hands. Using her thumbs, she dug into the corners of his mouth, prizing first those stained lips apart, then his teeth. Her yell became a sob when she saw the black, lumpy streaks coating his tongue. There wasn't just the juice here, but the berries too, their glossy skins mashed into a pulp. How had he got them? There was no deadly nightshade in the meadow, she was certain of that. She had seen it growing in the forest, but he would have never gone in there. Tagore exhaled and a waft of sweetness washed over Nara, bringing despair in its wake. Where did you get it? She cried. Seizing his shoulders, she shook him as she would a wicked child. Why did you do this? Her grandfather shrank from her, face crumpling. Where? Nara demanded again, terror making her cruel. She dragged him closer, fist sponging his shirt, and at last he glanced fearfully towards the floor. Another cup, previously unnoticed, rested against the leg of his chair. Nara released him to snatch it up, angling the rim towards the window. At first, she didn't understand what she was seeing. The liquid inside shone pale, not dark, and she caught the hay-like scent of weak beer above the mustiness of the room. But then the light rippled, and there was the lumpen paste, loosened with water. She recoiled sharply, nose burning as though the sweetness were the foulest stench. Without a support, Tagore had half slipped from his chair. His chest, painfully thin below the rough wool of his shirt, heaved, and he looked up at her with the wide-eyed fear of a small boy, not a man of 68. Catching that expression, Nara felt immediately gutted, as though someone had scooped out her insides and left her there, a wobbling sack of skin. What was she doing? She was being weak and stupid. Tagore deserved better. She had to be better, or else she would kill him just as certainly as the poison itself. Placing the cup aside, she eased her grandfather back upright in arms that shook. It wasn't difficult. For all his height, he was no heavier than she was. I'm getting Talia, she told him gently. She'll fix this. She, she can help you. Tagore started to shake his head. She soothed him by pressing the edge of her sleeve against his mouth, carefully dabbing away the juice. I'll only be a few minutes, she promised in a whisper. Just, just stay awake, all right? I'll get Talia and then everything will be fine, you'll see. Nara, no. Yes, she said firmly. I know you don't like her, but there's nothing else I can do. We need her. Even as she reassured him, coldness seemed to creep through her veins. In all her years running errands for the healer, helping Talia collect herbs and deliver parcels, Nara had never seen the woman treat anything as serious as nightshade poisoning before. Was it even within the scope of her powers? She had to believe that it was. It was too late to make Tagore vomit. Only magic could save him now. Nara. Her grandfather was fumbling at her arm. No, 
no time. Of course there is, she replied, praying it wasn't a lie. Kinsridge isn't far, I'll be back before you know it. No time. Just wait here. No, to go I have to go. No! Fingers long and brittle looking as twigs clamped around her forearm with surprising force. Startled, Nara met Tagore's gaze again and immediately wished she hadn't. Those black holes bored right into her, but they didn't look like tunnels now, empty and vacant. They were pits and something was stirring at the bottom. There isn't time, Tagore asked, clinging to her with all his strength. Nara, my Nara, you have to leave. Yes, that's what I... No, 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 silly girl, you don't understand. This is the beginning. This is the chase. You have to take it and leave before... Tagore stopped, eyes flicking nervously aside as though at some unexpected sound. Nara was about to pry his hand away when he abruptly pulled her closer and continued, before she comes back. She? Even though each second felt painful, a wasted moment, Nara hesitated at that. Had someone else been here while she was out? It seemed unlikely. They had no friends in Kinsridge, nor indeed any of the villages scattered along the southern edge of the forest. In fact, the only other person ever to come here was Talia, but the healer had already checked in on Tagore earlier that week. Why would she have visited again today? Oh, today. The realization when it came hit Nara hard. Her eyes snapped instantly to the table by the kitchen, and there, sure enough, were two little packages, one tied in the neat canvas wrapping that was unmistakably Talia's handiwork. The healer must have delivered it sometime that afternoon. Inhaling slowly, she didn't want to upset Tagore any further. Nara turned back to him and asked with terrible calm, are, are you saying that Talia did this? That she brought you something? She didn't voice the third question. Did you ask her to? Tagore blinked. Talia? Yes, Talia. She was here. Did she... Did she bring you them? The berries? There was a horrible pause during which something stirred in his eyes again, some furtive, dark thing like a disease. Then, quite suddenly, Tagore began to laugh. He rocked forwards and backwards, laughing in a series of dry, violent barks that flecked Nara clo Nara's clothes with black spittle and made her wish she hadn't spilled the water, even though she knew that giving him something to drink now would just wash more of the poison down his throat. When he finally stilled again, his breath came harder than ever, and his voice was an unrecognisable croak as he said, that, that herb witch? No, no, someone with real power. He shook his head, still chuckling. Who? Who are you talking about? Tagore didn't answer. Nara stared at him in dismay. She was wasting too much time. I'm going to the village, she explained, removing his hand from his moving his hand from her arm and squeezing his fingers. We need Talia, Grandfather. You have to let me leave. Leave? Yes. And take it with you. Tagore lurched forwards again, nearly pitching from his chair. Nara caught him awkwardly, but when she tried to return him to his seat, he wouldn't let go. You have to take it, he told her fiercely, blackened teeth bared inches from her own. It's yours. Yours. She can't ever get it, do you understand? 
to go. You need help. It's too dangerous. You're very sick. Foolish, foolish of me to keep it. I have to go to go, please. Her grandfather struggled, twisting as she forced him down. With the hand that wasn't gripping her, he groped around on the chair. Perhaps, Nara thought, to push himself off. She was wrong. A moment later, the hand came up again in a fist. He pressed it firmly against her chest. Yours, he repeated. Nara fell still. She could feel the bony ends of his fingers digging through her shirt, but between them, something else, something smooth and strangely cold. Looking down, she saw a pale gleam into Gore's hand, and then, as her eyes adjusted, the most improbable of things, a solid sphere of glass about two inches across, its flawless surface capturing and reflecting the last of the day's light. She knew it was glass because traders came this way to avoid the forest, carrying expensive glass beads and goblets with them. Those trinkets were rubbish, though, compared with the artistry of what she was seeing now. She hadn't even known glass could be so clear, so pure, as though a mage had managed to turn the air itself solid. What is that? she asked Tugor. In answer, he held it up before her face. Seen from this angle with the light lancing through it, Nara noticed that the orb wasn't glass through and through as she'd first thought. At its very center sat a perfect air bubble the size of her thumbnail. Sensing Tugor's intent, she took the object from him. The moment she did, all his strength seemed to evaporate. He folded as though cut from paper. I hid it, he told Nara as she lowered him down one-handed. I ran and I hid. Hoped she wouldn't find us. They always do. They always come crawling, whispering in at night. Slumped in the recesses of his chair, he seemed sun suddenly smaller. Tears were trickling down his cheeks as he tilted his face towards the window, where the forest's edge stretched a darker band through the gathering shadows. They always come, he whispered. Come to bury me. Yes, finally, finally with them. Hush now. Nara whispered back, wiping the tears away. I won't let them, do you hear? No one's going to bury you. Tagore turned black eyes on her. They'll try to bury you, too. The way he said it, simply as though stating the day of the week, turned Nara cold. She repressed a shudder, telling herself that it wasn't her grandfather talking, of course not. Deadly Nightshade was known to eat people's minds, turning reason to raving fancy and Tagore's mind had already been weaker than most. Nara, he gave a little gasp. They're coming, I, I hear them. Shh, there's no one else here. It's just you and me, all right? Just you and me. No, listen, listen. Nara listened a moment, in which she heard only silence. Loud, muttered Tagore, so loud. Never learn patience, no, not in a thousand years. Always cooling and whispering and wanting. Well, they'll have me now, she's seen to that. Who, who, grandfather? Should have been ready. Should have known she'd find it. She never lets go. She won't find you, he said, looking at her with sudden fervor. His mouth stretched in a horrible grin. Not my Nara. You'll be gone, long gone. This was it, her chance. If she didn't go now with his mind tumbling further and further out of reach, then it would be too late. 
Yet, although the moment dragged at Nara, pulling her towards the door like a tide, something in her resisted too. How could she leave Tagore like this? What if she ran, but didn't make it back in time? Then the last thing he knew would be this room, dank, dark, without the warmth of a fire or even a loving hand to comfort him. He would die alone, and if there was one thing she had promised herself, through years of sickness and confusion, black moods and nights spent listening to him whimper and turn in his bed, it was this. He would never be alone. She would never leave, not while he still needed her. Her grandfather was looking up, but there was something unfocused about his stare now, as though he saw only the pools of darkness swimming in his own eyes. When he reached out, fingers faintly stirring the air, Nara made up her mind. That outstretched hand, it seemed to ask for her. Pocketing the orb, she slid into the chair with him, pulling him close until she cradled him against her chest like a child, her cheek resting on top of his grizzled hair. Tagore barely seemed to notice. He slumped weakly at her side. I, she told him, am staying right here. This is my home with you. Where else would I go, huh? She rocked him back and forth gently, pushing down the inner voice that still screamed at her to run. The decision was made. She had to be here now, in heart as well as body. Anything else was failing him. She just wished his skin wasn't so hot or that his breath was stronger. Dear gods, it hardly brushed her neck. Where would I go? She asked again and clutched him tighter. Tagore was quiet for a very long time. His silence scared her far worse than the feverish things he'd babbled before. At least then there had been some spark in him. Now he seemed to be sinking, allowing himself to be pulled under like a shipwrecked soul who had lost all hope of the shore. Nara was sinking with him too. Back and forth she rocked, unable to do anything besides offer this most basic of comforts because what else was there? He was dying. She was letting him die. She'd given up her chance to help. And now she couldn't even whisper that she loved him, that everything would be fine, because to do so would make her the worst of liars when she was the reason everything was very, very not. At last it was Tagore who broke the silence. His lungs rattled in a dragging breath, which, when it escaped again, carried the faintest of words. Forest. Forest? Nara instantly stilled, pulling back to look at him properly. Don't you worry about that? Not now. Yes, I never, never said. Tagore's eyelids dipped dangerously. When they opened again, his voice was stronger. Nara, he told her, the further in you go, the more dangerous it gets. Don't lose yourself. Don't let them take you. Shh, shh. I don't go in the forest, remember? You'll have to. Nara hesitated. Grandfather? North, Tagore said, and even half blind, his eyes seemed to hold her. There's a friend, three days in, the Enchantress. Nara couldn't speak. Something had suddenly lodged in her throat. For a moment, she wondered whether it was her own tongue until she realized she could feel that too, a thick, useless thing that seemed all too big for her mouth. 
Words built like pressure, clogging, threatening to burst. But it wasn't words that finally came. It was tears, long held back and now springing forth silently. She cried, knowing that if she needed any sign that her grandfather was lost, far beyond nonsense about strange women and whispers and characters from troubadours' tales like the Enchantress, it was this. In his right mind, Tagore would never, ever tell her to go into the forest. It was his greatest fear, an abiding shadow that haunted his life, just as the real trees darkened the edge of the meadow. And if the poison had taken that from him, then there was truly nothing left to save. North. He was weakening again, voice fading back into breath. Promise, he managed to say. And at that she nodded before remembering his blindness and leaning down to kiss his forehead fiercely. North, she repeated. I promise. I promise. North. Yes. Yes, grandfather. She couldn't bear to meet his eyes any more. Pulling to go close, tears dampening his hair, Nara went back to rocking. Thank you very much. The Bristol Con Fringe is a monthly podcast produced by the Bristol Con Foundation. The music at the beginning of this podcast is The Future by Chevy174. We'd like to thank the famous Royal Navy volunteer for providing us with a venue, and we'd like to thank you for listening. If you would like to keep up to date with our events, please like our Bristol Con Fringe page on Facebook or follow us on Twitter at BrizConFringe.